Now is the part of our service where we hear from God's Word through the reading as well as the preaching of God's Word. And so uh, you can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11. If you're visiting with us, we typically work our way through books of the Bible. And so we find ourselves halfway through the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, kind of in the middle of a story here. <clears throat> and I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 17, John 11:17. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into this world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary, got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus Wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within him, within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by This time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around me, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come before you and ask for your help that you would give us understanding. Think of the psalmist who cried out, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from John 11. Amen. One of the common challenges to theism in general and Christianity in particular is that how can God be good and all-powerful and there exist suffering, evil, and death in this world? How can those three axioms coexist? And the answer that the Scripture Gives and really we see in John chapter 11 is that God has sufficiently good reasons for the existence of evil, suffering, and death. And John, in, in John chapter 11, in, in a very real sense, is a wonderful microcosm of the biblical answer to that question because we see Jesus permitting the death of Lazarus for a sufficiently good reason, namely the greater manifestation of His glory and also wonderfully an expression of love to His people. Now, that is an answer that we can give to that challenge, but I would suggest to you it doesn't give the full picture. It, It... It doesn't give the full picture that we also see in John chapter 11, namely God's hatred towards evil, suffering, and death. And the reality that God Himself entered into this realm of evil, suffering, and death and experienced it Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a tremendously profound truth that is unique to Christianity. Because God, from the beginning, when He made His creation, after those six days of creation where He spoke the world into existence, in Genesis 1.31, it says that God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. By the time we get to Genesis 3, things aren't so good anymore. Sin has entered into God's universe. Rebellion, and with it, suffering and death. And this is the world that we now live in. And so, this second kind of answer to that challenge, I think we're going to see wonderfully from the rest of John chapter 11. Now, to kind of help you to understand where we're at in the story. The story opens up in John chapter 11 with, uh, with um, Mary and Martha sending a message to Jesus that, uh, that their brother Lazarus is sick. 
And uh, John clearly communicates that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha and they loved Him and, and yet Jesus stays, right? He doesn't immediately go. And, and He says that He's going to die. And, and at one point Jesus says, indeed, Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples don't quite understand that. And Jesus has to clearly flat out say, okay, He's dead. But He does say that He is going to awaken Him. And then you remember on the tail end of that, Thomas, the twin, he says, uh, let's go to Judea and die. Okay? Uh, because it, at this point in the story of the Gospel of John, the heat has been turned up. Numerous times now they've tried to kill Jesus. Numerous times passages have ended with these religious leaders with stones in their hands ready with a mob riot to take the life of Jesus. And Jesus escapes from their midst. And so that's happened now multiple times. And now Lazarus, his funeral is taking place just two miles outside of Jerusalem where that heated hostility is taking place. So let's pick it up in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 17, chapter 11. So when Jesus came, he found that they had already been, that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now this is a little detail that I think has some significance. Uh, significance in the sense that the uh, part of rabbinical tradition was that, and it's kind of weird, but that the spirit of a dead person hung around for three days and then once uh, decomposition began to take place and the, the face of the person changed, the spirit then leaves. Okay, But here it's now the fourth day. Um, also, being the fourth day, it would have been very clear that indeed Lazarus wasn't just taking a nap, right? He wasn't just sleeping uh, with that euphemistic language that Jesus uses about him, but he was actually dead. I mean, he, he wouldn't even been able to survive for, for four days without food and water. He, he was dead by this point. It was very clear. Verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. <clears throat> so here, this geographical lo location is mentioned here, that this area of Bethany, as I mentioned already, is just two miles away from Jerusalem, which gave opportunity for friends of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus to come and pay their respects at this funeral. Uh, but it also was very close, as I mentioned earlier, to the main hub of hostility in Israel, namely Jerusalem. And so this was very risky business for Jesus and His disciples to head in this direction. Verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet Him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So Martha gets wind that Jesus has, is just outside the village of Bethany and she runs out to meet him. Mary stays put. 
John doesn't choose to tell us why Mary stays and Martha runs out to meet him. We can only speculate. But just try to place yourself in Martha's sandals at this point. She has just lost her brother. Her brother whom she loved, who her sister loved, who Jesus loved. And Jesus, the great wonder worker who had done tons of miracles and healings throughout his ministry, was not there. And so her heart is heavy knowing that Jesus has the power, has the ability, had the ability to heal Lazarus and and rescue him from the throes of death. He was not there. And she is not ashamed to remind Jesus of that reality because when she sees Jesus in verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But yet, Martha, she does believe. She does have a heart of faith. It's not a perfect heart of faith. But notice her acknowledgement in verse 23. I'm sorry, in verse 22. Even now I know whatever you ask, God will give you. I know that there's this perfect relationship that you have with the Father that He will answer your prayers. Verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, Your brother will rise again. Now, Martha responds in verse 24 by saying to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jesus says Lazarus is going to rise again, and she interprets this as Jesus giving some good biblical counsel on eschatology, on last things, that believers, in, at the end of the day, their, their bodies come out of the grave like Daniel speaks of in Daniel chapter 12. And, and she says, yes, yes, I know, that's, that's our hope. But of course, Jesus is talking about now He's going to rise again. Verse 25, notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus responds with this tremendous statement, this tremendous declaration about Himself. It's, it's, it's one of those seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Uh, John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Uh, John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. This is now the fifth of those I am statements. And it's interesting because in those previous I am statements, the, the statement was more um, something that would be like a metaphor. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the door. I am the shepherd. But Jesus here says, I am the resurrection, which is, is actually more of an event, right? It's an event of those who are bodily dead being raised to life. And so Jesus here declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And so what what does he mean by this? I I think what he means by this is that I, 
I am the source of life. I am the main event at the resurrection. I am the one who has power over life and death, and I will be the one who will raise bodies from the grave. That's a tremendous claim, right? This would be the equivalent of something like this if tomorrow evening the Ohio State Buckeyes are playing, Justin Fields throws for seven touchdown passes and runs for 100 yards, and they are victorious over the Alabama Crimson Tide. And if Justin Fields were to say, I am the college football championship game, it'd be hard to argue with him, right? He's the center of attraction. He was the life of the game. He, he won it. But obviously in a far greater way, Jesus is saying here, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a, an astounding statement. And then he follows it up with this, this promise. And everyone who believes, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus gives this promise that those who believe in Him will live even if they die, and everyone who lives and believes will never die. Now obviously, what Jesus means by this is not that those who believe in Him would never experience physical death. Because that obviously happens. All the disciples of Jesus would die. Lazarus himself would have to die again. He's not around. I don't, you know, you can't find Lazarus with YouTube videos out there. He's dead. So what Jesus means here is the promise of eternal life, forever life after death, but also the hope that that forever life immaterially with the soul will be united with a body that will live forever at the resurrection when Jesus summons people from the grave. This is a tremendous promise of life, of life eternal. Jesus is claiming here to have the kind of authority and power over death that nobody has. Verse 27, She... Martha said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. We often give Martha a hard time, right? You know, busy Martha, nagging Martha, control freak Martha. But this may be one of the greatest confessions of faith and all the Scripture. One of the greatest affirmations of faith in who Jesus is. And, and, and did you look at it closely? It kind of looks familiar. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Remember the purpose statement of the Gospel of John in John twenty thirty one. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you might have life in His name. And so here, in the center of the Gospel of John, the very middle part of the Gospel of John, here Martha makes this confession of faith, which is the very purpose for why John is writing. And the aim, of course, is that we would follow Martha in this great confession of faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the promised anointed one, and the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who came into this world, clothing Himself in humanity. She believes. But, as with all belief... It's a work in progress, is it not? Verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now we don't know for sure, but perhaps she said secretly because um, she knows that Jesus has a bounty on his head. So she didn't come announcing, you know... Hey guys, Jesus is here! No, she just says it secretly, unbeknownst to her. Before before the end of the day, everybody's going to know that Jesus is there. She says secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that is Mary heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw Mary, got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So here, Martha comes away from this conversation with Jesus. She goes back into the village of Bethany. She whispers in Mary's ear that Jesus wants to see her. Mary gets up and these mourners go with her. Now, mourners in the ancient world, uh, if you had a funeral, uh, you would often hire people, professional mourners. I know it kind of sounds weird, uh, but, but this is what they would do. And, and this mourning process actually would go on for, for weeks. And so they follow Mary, thinking she's going to the tomb, but she's going out to see Jesus. Verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Mary, when she sees Jesus, she prostrates herself before Jesus. She falls at his feet, no doubt overcome with grief, overcome with sorrow, and evidently overcome with a measure of disappointment that Jesus was not there to rescue her brother. And she makes almost the exact same statement her sister had said. Namely, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. 
So Jesus sees Mary sobbing. He sees these Jews who followed with her sobbing. And the text says, the New American Standards, and and many of the translations translate this way, that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. I I would suggest to you that that's an okay translation, but I think it doesn't capture an angle that we need to see. The, The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in spirit and deeply moved. This word, it only occurs, I think, three or four times in the New Testament. Every occasion in the New Testament, it's somebody who's angry. In fact, it's used uh, even in in the ancient world for, for a horse snorting in anger. It's, it's a very vivid word. Now, it, it can mean deeply emotional, but, but in most instances, it means deeply angry emotionally. Verse 34. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I remember growing up in Sunday school, Sunday school teacher said we could get points for memorizing verses. I can't remember if it was my brother who shared with me, oh, I, got the great, I got a great verse for you to memorize. This is an easy one to memorize. It may be small, but it is packed with profound truth. Because here again we see a window into the emotional life of our Lord. Weeping. Verse 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man also from dying? Now they see Jesus crying and they conclude partially, they conclude, I think, partially right that his tears are an expression of sorrow that is related to his love for Lazarus. But I'm going to suggest to you in a minute, I think it's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. And now for the third time in this passage, Jesus is now being questioned for not having been there. And this time they lay it forth in in argument kind of form. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So they bring up as... Exhibit A, the healing of the blind man of chapter 9. This man who has the power to create new eyes, could he not have done something had he been here? And of course the answer is yes, he could have. But if he had, then he wouldn't be able to do what he's about to do. 
Verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within. Same word here. Same word that I'm suggesting in verse 33 should be translated outraged, angered. Jesus again, outraged within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. So here John describes this tomb as it was a kind of cave and uh, there was probably uh, like shelves of, of, of bodies that had laid there in that tomb. It was common for families to purchase a cave as a, as a tomb setting um, for them to bury their, their family, their loved ones when they would pass. Verse 39, Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. So there would have been a, a, a stone in front of the mouth of this cave where, the, the, where these bodies lie, in particular Lazarus's body, and the stone would have been there to keep animals and thieves and robbers, grave robbers, out of it. And Jesus instructs them to remove the stone. Now, Martha is appalled by this thought because she knows that Lazarus has now been in the grave for four days and in King James English, he stinketh. And so if you move that stone, there's going to be this awful waft of decomposition that would have hit them in the noses and brought them to their knees. And and so she's appealing to Jesus, don't do this. He's been dead four days. She was right about Lazarus, but she was wrong about Jesus. Her faith was a work in progress. It was a genuine faith. It was a sincere faith. She didn't know and believe what Jesus was about to do. J.C. Ryle says, The root of happy religion is clear, distinct, well-defined knowledge of Jesus Christ. More knowledge would have saved Martha of many sighs and tears. Your theology, what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about God is what will hold you in times of suffering and tragedy. That's why it's important. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? Jesus says to Martha, she, he, he asked this question, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, now that actually is not recorded earlier on in the narrative. We, we presume that Jesus said it. But, but he did say, what he did say was that Lazarus will rise. And so, it's very clear, that's what he meant by seeing the glory of God. Now, now we might read this and think, well, was Lazarus' coming back from the dead dependent upon the faith of Martha? 
And the obvious answer is no, because she didn't believe, right? She's upset at Jesus for wanting the stone rolled away. So what does Jesus mean when He says, Did I not say, if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Anybody who was there could have seen what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus doing what He would do was not dependent upon their faith, but their ability to see the glory of God in this work of Jesus It was necessary that they have faith. Oh, and by the way, does this not also sound familiar? To see the glory of God? Isn't this how John in his prologue opens up in John 1.14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I would suggest to you 114 and 2031 sandwiched together are really the purpose of the Gospel of John. John writes to unfold the glory of Jesus so that we would believe. And each narrative, each section, each sign, each miracle, each statement of Jesus unveils the glory of Jesus. And our job is to believe. Verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus now prays out loud for the benefit of those around him so that they would hear and believe. And then, in dramatic format, in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You can just imagine the crowd there. And no doubt the reason why Jesus cried out in a loud voice was so that all the crowd could hear what He said. And then in verse 44, the man who had died came forth. That's interesting. The way John describes him, it's the man who had died. The most important thing you need to know about Lazarus right now is that he was dead. But he's not anymore. He came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. So, the point of this description is, is to tell us that Lazarus was wrapped like any dead body was wrapped during that day. There would have been a large sheet that was laid over you and you would have been wrapped. And then, then, So then naturally, when Lazarus is coming out, he probably would have been hobbling along as he came out and Jesus gives instruction to unwrap him. And the crowd does. Those there do unwrap him. And... Probably the best comment on this verse is that of Charles Haddon Spurgeon that Jesus specifically had to call out Lazarus so that only Lazarus came out of the grave. (laughs) 
And of, and of course, there's all kinds of tantalizing details that we, we wish we knew of. Uh, we, we might think that, the, that it would say that Lazarus then wrote a best-selling book called Four Days in Heaven. And it sold millions. New York Times bestseller. And then Mary and Martha had a follow-up book to that, Four Days in Hell. <laughs> But it doesn't exist. John chooses to give us these bare minimum details, but he does give something of the response there that follows in verse 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But then this ominous statement, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Well, what do we take away from this passage? Two points. Two simple points. Two glories of Jesus that you must believe in. The first is the glory of His mercy. The glory of His mercy. Now, when I say mercy, mercy is a word that communicates uh, tenderness, compassion. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes it's said you have grace for the guilty, mercy for the miserable. It's, it's more of an emotive word than grace is. It, 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 it suggests God's pity, God's tenderness. And this is what we see here Wonderfully displayed with Jesus throughout this narrative, right? We see in verse 35, Jesus in the midst of the sorrows of seeing the weeping of Mary and Martha and the crowd that was there, Jesus also sheds tears. He felt with them in their pain. He felt with them in their sorrow. It is interesting. There's three occasions that record Jesus' tears in the New Testament. One of them is in Luke chapter 19, verse 40 and 41, where it says, Jesus approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and He wept over it. Why did He weep over it? Because the hammer of God's judgment was coming upon it soon. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Probably a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus crying there. So we have at least three instances here in the New Testament that record the tears of Jesus. And here, this one, in the midst of a funeral, in the midst of sorrows around Him, He too emotes with those alongside of Him. But, but the obvious kind of question, at least in my mind, is why was He crying? I mean, I know this is going to sound very carnal, and sinful, but if I had the ability <laughs> to raise somebody from the dead and I'm going to this funeral, I mean, I would be strutting around. <laughs> Why are you guys crying? Come on, man. 
And then I roll that stone away. I mean, but that's not what Jesus does. And, and so Jesus, and, and He's repeated numerous times throughout the narrative, He said it to the disciples, Lazarus is asleep, I'm going to awaken him. He says to Martha, Lazarus will rise, and, and, and she doesn't quite understand that. He, he's dropped hints all along the way, He's about to do this. Now imagine with me for a moment, imagine if my four-year-old was missing and I mean, I'm, everybody around knows. Everybody's looking for him, and there's an you know an Amber Alert out on him, and, and and everybody's sobbing and crying. But I know he's hiding under the bed. I know he's hiding under the bed. He's going to come out, you know, in ten minutes. I, I I probably wouldn't be in the same emotional state as everybody else, and that's why I think. That while, while Jesus is weeping over the death of Lazarus, yes, but he knows Lazarus is coming out of the grave, so it must be more than that. And I would suggest to you, he's weeping over the reality of death in this fallen world. Yes, over the death of Lazarus, but more generally, over death itself. That this is not the world that God created. When He spoke this universe into existence, He saw all that He had made and it was good. There was no death. There wasn't billions of years of evolution and death and disease and dying. That wasn't the world that God created. He created a world that was good, that was without suffering, that was without death. Death is an intruder into God's world. And this drove Jesus to tears. Because even though He knew He was going to rip Lazarus out of the grave, that eventually Lazarus would probably be placed back in the same grave. And every one of Jesus' followers would also come to an end in the grave. And all of God's people save that generation that's there at His own coming would experience the reality of death. And Jesus weeps over it. He weeps over it. Jesus is not indifferent to the reality of suffering and death that takes place in this world. He feels with His people who grieve. And Jesus, in case you didn't know this, this is is part of Jesus' real humanity. He was a real human. Yes, He's eternally God, but somehow in the wonder of the union of the two natures, He had a real human nature that really emoted just like our human nature, that really was able to witness tragedy and see death in this world and shed real, genuine tears. Friend, that is huge. That we have a Savior 
who feels with us in our infirmities. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That's a double negative. Which means we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who is tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. Do you sometimes think that Jesus is aloof, indifferent to you in the midst of your pain and sorrows? He's not. Do you think that somehow the great God is distant from this world of suffering? He's not. And friends, this should, if I could use this phrase, this should make Jesus very approachable. You get what I'm saying? He is approachable. He understands. There's nothing that you could experience in this world that He doesn't in some way, some sense, understand experientially except for sin. That's the only thing that's common to humanity that He does not experience. This also teaches us something about real humanity. And even, dare I say, manhood. Sometimes we can have this view of manliness that doesn't shed a tear. Well, the perfect man, perfect masculinity, shed tears. It's right and appropriate to shed tears in this fallen world. It's right and appropriate to lament over the reality of death and suffering and sin in this world. Our Savior did it. This also should teach us as we see this glorious aspect of Jesus that we too should feel with others in the midst of their suffering. Does not the Apostle Paul say that we are to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice? In fact, that word compassion carries the idea to to feel with somebody. That it is a loving thing to, to try to place yourself in the shoes of another, to feel alongside of them in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their grief. And, and by the way, sometimes that's, that's the best thing we can do. It's just to, to feel with them, to weep with them. Friend, if you are afraid to approach Jesus, can I suggest He's approachable? You don't have to be shy. You don't have to think that He's insulated Himself. He understands. 
You can go to, in fact, the next verse that I quoted in Hebrews 4.15 that we do not have a high priest who is, uh, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted at all points as we are and yet without sin. The next verse says, Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Talk to Jesus. You can go to Him. Perhaps you don't know Jesus this morning. May this be an introduction of Him to you. That you can go to Him. You can talk to Him. Because while He has a real human nature, He also has a divine nature that can hear your cries. So, behold the glory of His mercy. But secondly, behold the glory of His might. We see this wonderfully in this passage, do we not? We see in, in 11, 25, and 26 this I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Here again is one of these magnificent I am statements in the Gospel of John that, that harkens us back to Exodus chapter 3 where, where God at the burning bush reveals Himself to Moses and says, I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. And here Jesus, thousands of years later, and in, as the incarnate God says, I am. I am the resurrection. It's, it is certainly speaks towards His deity. That while He is a real human who weeps alongside other fellow weepers, He is God of very God with the strength of omnipotence. The same God who said in Genesis 1, let there be, and there was, is the same God who stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. This is His might. This is His might that is also, in a sense, motivated, dare I say, by His anger. I mention it in verse 33-38. Wherefore Jesus, when He saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, He was, and I'm suggesting, He was outraged. He was livid in spirit and was troubled. Now, Now we may ask, well, what's He angry about? Well, He's not angry with God. Because that would suggest that God had somehow done something unjust or evil. I don't think he's angry at the mourners. Some suggest that, but I don't think that's what's going on. He's not angry at Mary and Martha because they're inadequate faith. I think the tip-off of what he's angry about comes when we see the second time it mentions he's angry in verse 38 when it says, So Jesus, again being outraged, He came to the tomb. In other words, His outraged heart moved His feet to go to that grave and to summon Lazarus out of the grave. What was He angry at? He was angry at death. He was angry at death. 
the great intruder into God's world. And so that's what he does in verse 43. He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he, in that moment, conquers death, at least for Lazarus, and at least for the moment. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, says, Extinguishable, I'm sorry, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath. Behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. Calvin also remarks, Christ approaches the sepulcher as a champion preparing for a contest. And we need not wonder what he groans as the violent tyranny, uh, as the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. So you can just imagine if if that word that I'm suggesting translated anger uh, suggests a snorting, angry horse, you can just imagine Jesus angry and pumped up and ready to summon Lazarus out of the grave. And of course, this is but a foretaste of what we see at the end of the Gospel of John. Because this raising of Lazarus is a tidbit of conquering death, but it's not the real showdown. The real showdown takes place later on in the book of John when Jesus rises from the dead. And it's encapsulated in statements like Jesus makes in John chapter 8 and in verse, I think, 18 when He says, No man takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to raise it up again. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who has the authority over death, who can put His foot on the throat of death and on Satan and rescue those who through the fear of death have been held captive all their lives. Friends, this is huge. We live in a world of death. I can see across the street tombstones. They're all dead. C.S. Lewis said one out of one people die and the numbers can't be improved upon. It's true. And right now we live in the midst of a world 
panicking over death. Panicking over the reality of a virus that might take their life. Paralyzed. And it's in the midst of this that, well, we want to seek to protect life and and save life, but Christians of all people ought not to live in the fear of death. Because their champion conquered death and the grave. We can have the hope and the confidence that we who believe in Him will never die. Because He has authority over death. Friend, is that your confidence this morning? That Jesus put His foot on the throat of death? Does this help get you out of bed in the morning? To give you the confidence to live life not cowering in fear, not reckless, but confident that no matter what happens, you are hid in the promise that Christ gives in John eight twenty five or John eleven twenty five and twenty six, where he says, "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die." And then he asks that piercing question: Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if you do, this is a glorious message we can give to the panicking world around us. You don't have to live under the fear of the tyranny of the fear of death. Jesus has conquered the grave. He is the mighty champion who snorted at death and conquered it. Jesus, as one preacher puts it, He is the lion and the lamb. Despite His high claims, He is never pompous. We never see Him standing on His own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and the broken, He is completely fearless before the corrupt and powerful. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, unhesitating authority without, with a complete Lack of self-absorption. Holiness in unending conviction without any shortage of approachability. Power without insensitivity. What a Savior. A lion who conquers death and a lamb who weeps by the graveside of Lazarus. I mentioned that this is a common objection to Christianity, the reality of sin and suffering in this world. Let me read to you this little playlet. I first came across it in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. It says, At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How 
can he know about suffering? snapped a pert brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured tear, beatings, torture, and death. Another group, a black man from this group, lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn around his neck, lynched for no crime but being black. And another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes, said, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering He permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in a heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know about all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because each had suffered most. A Jew, a black man, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalamide child. And in the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. And it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge. He must endure what they had endured. Their decision that God should be sentenced to come to earth as a man. This is what they said. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last... Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let them be a great host of witnesses to verify it. And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of assembled people. And at last... When they had finished pronouncing their sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served His sentence. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, what can we say? What a great Savior we have in Jesus. One who has dwelt among us. And indeed, while we were not there in flesh and blood to behold His glory, we bless You that You recorded His glory in the pages of this book of John. And so we have beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Give us a heart to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.
We're going to close by singing, Lord, I need you.